Hello and welcome to the Ask the Geographer podcast series from the Department of Education and Outdoor Learning at the Royal Geographical Society with IBG. I'm Harry. In each podcast, I'll meet geographers from around the world to ask them about topical events, timely publications and geographical research. By value, oil is still the largest traded commodity in the world, by some margin. Whilst we're still in a phase of decarbonisation that's likely to accelerate, it's still important to understand the history of oil in the UK and how the economic landscape is changing. And changing it is. Increasingly, international oil firms, who in the past have embedded operations in the UK, are now moving in a different direction, meaning the way the UK is plugged into global networks is evolving. So today we're talking about a key topic, the UK oil sector. Professor Gavin Bridge from the Department of Geography at Durham University joins us to discuss the geographies of energy transition and the governance of North Sea oil fields. His current research is in the fraying ties between big oil and the UK, with a particular focus on the oil industry assets across the country, the decoupling of some networks, and the durability of relationships in the sector. Thank you for joining us today, Gavin. Hi, Harry. Um, good to be here. Thanks, thanks for having me. Um, can we start just by outlining what research you do? Sure. Yeah. So I'm a human geographer, but I'm a human geographer who looks at resources, materials and environments, uh, particularly extractive industries, things like oil, gas, mining, materials that are associated with the energy transition, like copper and lithium, for example. And I guess because those materials uh, tend to be economic in some nature, even if their economic or commercial character is contested, then I often identify myself as an economic geographer. Most of what I do is about extracting value from the earth in some way. And that often means that I link to the field of resource geography. And I guess if you really push me, I'd have to confess I'm interested in holes in the ground, uh, the materials and the geographies that arise from those holes, the forms of property, profit and possibility to which those holes give rise. And that's true of many materials, but it's particularly true of oil. And is oil our number one material in the UK? <laughs> that's that's a great question, Harry. It depends what you mean by number one. I mean, we extract a lot of materials in the UK. Uh, I think by by volume, uh, we're probably looking at aggregates, uh, sand and gravel, and uh, the somewhat mundane materials, but uh, but which are nonetheless very important uh, for building, for construction, and for infrastructure. The role of oil and gas in the UK from the North Sea, from the UK continental shelf, has been longstanding. Um, about sixty years of development of the North Sea. Uh, and the peak production was at the turn of the millennium, around 1999 for oil and 2000 for gas. And since then, production has been declining. It's still significant um, in terms of the volume of materials that are extracted, uh, but it's been declining over time. And who are the global actors or, or national actors involved in the global oil industry? Yeah, it's useful to kind of think about the range of, of actors involved in this sector. I think we can start most obviously with, with companies. And we could think about a range of companies who are involved. Uh, you know, oil, one of the characteristics of oil is that it hides underground. So it has to be hunted and it has to be captured. Uh, so we're, there are firms that are dedicated to that task, to exploration and development. It, it often hides in the wrong place uh, from the point of view of people who want to acquire it. It's under someone else's land. So it needs to be controlled, it needs to be removed and transported. So there are companies that are involved in production and in logistics. And once it's in the ground, it takes on, it's a bit like wine in the sense that it, it takes on the kind of conditions of place, the character of place. 
Uh, so crude oil uh, comes in many different varieties, but the machines that use that oil use the products. When you fill up at the petrol station, for example, you expect a particular grade, a particular standard of fuel. Um, and so to go from that really varied raw material to a standardized product takes refining. So there are a range of companies that do that work of refining. So there are a number of terms that are used in the sector for describing those firms. Uh, there are some that are at the upstream end, the extraction and the production end. There are others that are at the downstream end um, in refining and distribution and retailing. The 8,000 petrol stations in the UK, for example, are part of that downstream arm. And then there are some companies that do all of that. And historically, they've been known as the integrated oil companies. Um, they'll be th- the, the names that many people are familiar with. In this country, companies like BP and Shell, for example. But it's not only companies that shape the oil sector. Uh, we can think, too, about the role of governments. Now, governments shape all kinds of industries, but they shape oil in quite a specific way. And that's because oil in most countries, not all, but in most countries, the oil in the ground belongs to the government, belongs to the state. So in this country, in the UK, uh, the oil underneath the North Sea um, and indeed under parts of the uh, onshore is owned by the Crown. So it's reserved to the government and the government issues licenses for companies to explore for and develop those, uh, those oil reserves. So companies have a really significant role in this sector, perhaps more so than in many other sectors. Uh, governments are also important because they do things that affect the rate of consumption of petroleum products, things like whether they invest in public transport that tends to bring oil use down overall, or whether they make big investments in roads or in airports that tend to expand oil use. And some governments go further than that. They own not just the subsurface, but they own oil and gas production as well. So state firms where production is owned by the government on behalf of the population and is managed in more or less commercial terms. Now, we often think of countries in the Middle East doing that, things like Saudi Aramco, state-owned oil company from Saudi Arabia, or um, the Iranian National Oil Company, or PetroChina, indeed, in in Asia, or PDVSA in Venezuela. But it's not unique to the Middle East or parts of Asia. Um, Equinor uh, is the Norwegian state-owned petroleum giant, a state-owned firm. And there are a number of other companies too. Uh, ENI, the Italian oil integrated oil company, has a 30% golden stake that is owned by by the government. There's one other thing I would like to mention there in terms of the actors that shape the sector. So we've talked briefly about corporations and states, but I think it's also useful to think about the role of civil society, organisations and and, and actors um, who shape through their activity, through their organisation, through their claims, um, shape the sector. So we might think about social movements, most obviously at the moment, organizations like Just Stop Oil or Extinction Rebellion. But we could think also about organizations like the RAC, the Royal Automobile Club, um, who lobby on behalf of road users and who argue for investments in road infrastructure. It sounds like the oil market uh, is complex and has a hidden political power as well. How does oil link to markets and the global dominance of the dollar specifically? Yeah, this is a really interesting connection. So I think one place to start there is we're probably familiar with the daily reminders of the price of oil. It's used as a a shorthand for the state of the economy. So uh, 
in some ways, that's rather strange. Uh, why should oil be kind of a, an indicator of the health of the economy? And even more strange, when you see that price, is it's denominated in dollars. And so if you think about the kind of nightly news, we'll often hear the price of Brent crude. So Brent crude, Brent's named after an oil and gas field in the UK. It's part of the North Sea. It's about midway between the Shetland Islands and Norway. And it began production in the 1970s. Um, but Brent crude, even though it's extracted from the UK, is priced in dollars, not in pounds. And so today a barrel of Brent crude is worth, what, about $70, $72 a barrel, something like that. And the reason for that being being priced in, in, in dollars is that oil is bought and sold in international markets. Companies need access to dollars to, to buy and sell oil. And that link between the dollar and oil was forged in the post-war period, uh, particularly in the the end of the 60s and the early 70s, when the US was the largest economy, the largest oil importer, and it paid for those imports in dollars. Other countries can get dollars relatively easily. It's a convertible currency. And it's that moment that forged that link between the dollar and oil. And politically, has there been a return to the 1970s politics of oil in the UK? And actually, what does that mean for anyone listening who hasn't understood what I've just said there? <laughs> yeah, so these historic parallels are always quite seductive. But the idea that we're seeing in the North Sea a repeat of the 1970s politics of oil, I don't think that's accurate. So what people tend to be picking up there is a couple of things. So if we think about the current positioning that the Labour government is taking towards towards the North Sea and its proposals for what it's calling Great British Energy, a state-owned firm, to invest in renewables, uh, so not in oil and gas, but to invest in renewables for electricity generation. So what, we get, what we're getting there is a proposal for a state-owned company in the renewable electricity generation space. So the idea that state-owned firms should generate electricity is widely practised elsewhere in Europe. Indeed, much of the UK's electricity generation is owned by European state-owned firms. So EDF, Electricité de France, which owns most of the nuclear fleet in the UK, or if we think about Equinor, state-owned company from Norway, owns a bunch of wind farms in the North Sea, or Vattenfall from Sweden, um, owns onshore wind farms in Wales. So the idea of state-owned firms operating electricity-generating infrastructure in the UK is is not an unusual one. The unusual thing is the idea uh, that the UK government should be one of those state firms, because that hasn't been the way over the last 20, 30 years that the electricity sector has operated in the UK. But in terms of oil and gas, we're not seeing an equivalent call to set up a state firm. In the 1970s, there was a short-lived British national oil company, BNOC, that was formed in 1975 and then was sold off in the early 80s as part of the privatisation. But I think the sense that there's an echo of the 1970s around the North Sea, there is something there, and I would style it like this, that what's going on is a repoliticization of oil and gas and the offshore, a sense that what happens offshore is important. It's where new relations, where new futures are being worked out. And I, I think that's that's true in a couple of ways, both in the somewhat obvious sense that the North Sea has become a multi-energy space not just oil and gas, but wind, hydrogen production, CCS, so carbon capture and storage. And, but secondly, of course, what's at stake in the context of a a climate emergency? 
the need to kind of shift direction, to forge a new set of relationships around energy. And much of that uh, sense of the need to shift, the need to make that change is being fought out, is being grappled with in the context of offshore oil and gas. So Labour's proposal, uh, if it came into government, to bring an end to new licensing for oil and gas, and the reaction that's provoked is an example of that. But so too is the work of organisations like Just Stop Oil or Art Not Oil or Uplift to connect the North Sea to a range of other spaces in the UK. Just just earlier this week, Just Stop Oil's action at the um, Ashes cricket game at Lords, or to bring the issue of oil into art galleries like London's Royal Academy or Manchester's Art Gallery, or indeed Just Stop Oil at the World Snooker Championship. What's going on there is a a bringing of the question of oil, which has typically been seen as uh, an offshore actions uh, for extraction, bringing it into a range of other public realms to say that this this matter needs to be debated and thought about and reworked now through these other settings. So I think there is something that the North Sea at the moment is a space in which we're seeing a new set of relations and reactions to that being hashed out, being worked through. And that makes it a very interesting space to be looking at. And this new space, this multi-energy space in the North Sea, what's changed in terms of ownership, control and, and capital? You mentioned earlier that the Crown uh, owns a lot of oil onshore, but who, who owns it offshore and what's changed? Yeah, so there's been quite a few shifts offshore. And I should say here that I've been doing some work recently, and you mentioned it at the, at the start of the conversation, uh, through the Fraying Ties Project. And the Fraying Ties Project is uh, funded by the Economic and Social Research Council, which is part of UK Research and Innovation. And that project work we're doing is done collaboratively with a, a range of other colleagues in geography and in associated disciplines. And some of the outcomes of the work that we've been doing helps us understand how the composition of the offshore oil sector has changed since peak production. So peak production was around 20 years ago. The North Sea is still producing substantial amounts of oil and gas, but the sector now is quite different to what it looked like 20 years ago. And there's really kind of three dimensions to that. So there are some shifts in ownership, so which firms are operating there. The shifts in the geographies of control if you think about where firms are headquartered, which com- which countries they're headquartered in, and the shifts in the form of capital, so the, the form of investment that's raised and the horizons over which that capital is invested. So just briefly on ownership, perhaps the most significant shift is that the role of uh, large US and European integrated oil companies, Shell, BP, Exxon, ConocoPhillips, the role of those companies has declined over time. So whereas they represented about 80% of production 20 years ago, they're now down to around 40% or less. And much of the assets that those companies have sold off have been picked up by smaller firms and by so by smaller firms and by firms that are state-owned uh, from Asia, uh, from Korea, uh, from China, and from the Middle East. And in addition to that, there's a growing role for a type of capital known as private equity. And what research have, have you done in the North Sea? So my, my interest in oil goes back some way, uh, not initially around the North Sea at all. My interest in oil started when I worked in Oklahoma uh, in the US, and I was interested there working in a college of geosciences 
where literally the building I was in was built by oil money. I was interested in the kind of legacies of those booms. And I I did some work with uh, Andy Wood, who's now at the University of Kentucky, looking at knowledge networks in the global oil sector. And I I wrote a book with uh, Philippe Lebillon, who's at the University of British Columbia, on the global oil sector. But the current work on the North Sea is part of a project funded by the Economic and Social Research Council. It's collaborative. There's a team of us, which I lead, and includes uh, Gisela Westkelsness in anthropology at the London School of Economics, James Marriott at Platform, which is an NGO in London with around a quarter of a century's experience of thinking about global oil networks, and Nana de Graaf, um, who's a political sociologist working at the Free University in Amsterdam. And the work that we've done there has really been to ask a very basic question, which is, what is the UK oil and gas sector? We think this isn't a trivial question because we really need to understand the sector's scope and its geographies if, as a society, we are to understand the sector's implications for things like energy security and moving rapidly beyond fossil fuels. Now, in this project, we offer two answers. We don't just raise a question. We've actually got some answers. Uh, so we answered, we've got two answers to that question. And the first is that the UK oil and gas sector extends beyond offshore production. So it's not only about the taking of resources from the North Sea, it's also about demand for hydrocarbons. It's also about oil and gas trade. It's about finance. And it's about the capacity of the UK state to uh, integrate and govern those different assets. And the second answer that we offer is that the UK oil and gas sector is, and indeed always has been, highly international. So, yes, it's made up of assets that are located in the territory of the UK. So we might think about the production platforms in the North Sea or pipelines or refineries or various terminals. But those physical assets are embedded in transnational corporate and financial networks. And furthermore, the the nature of those international ties is changing. As you mentioned at the start of the conversation, international firms that have very deep roots in the UK are shedding some of those assets that have been really significant for them over time. They're selling refineries, they're exiting or reprofiling their offshore production. But the really interesting thing is this isn't a simple story of decline and exit, um, because as those large firms reprofile their assets and sell, a number of other firms who don't have that range or depth of ties are coming into the UK looking for resources, looking for finance, looking for new markets. And we see this not just in the offshore space um, of the North Sea, but across refining as well. And why is it important to map the regional dimensions of the industry, i.e. the infrastructure at Milford Haven and on the Humber? The significance of these regional formations is they are sites through which many of us experience or, or come close to the infrastructures of the oil sector. They help us appreciate how not all the action is offshore, that this infrastructure is around us, it's more permeating, it's more present than we might imagine. There are a number of strategic sites, for example, around terminals and refineries and the connective infrastructure of pipelines that run not just from the offshore to the onshore, but actually through the country, underneath our feet, as it were. These regional formations are also very dynamic. They're changing places, um, key sites of transformation of the energy transition. 
So the northwest around the Stanlow oil refinery and into the Irish Sea are key sites for emergent hydrogen, for example, similarly in the northeast around Teesside. I think the regional concentrations also help us see some of the invisible and perhaps unknown geographies of the sector, particularly through inward investment. So if we take Grangemouth in Scotland, Grangemouth is a very large refinery, and it's part owned by PetroChina. That doesn't get a lot of attention. Saudi Arabia owns some of the uh, pipelines that distribute petroleum products through the subsurface of the UK. There's American capital offshore. So what we get here through these regional formations is a kind of folding in of other global geographies into the UK. And what this does is kind of confounds or challenges some of the naive geographies through which we often talk about the UK energy sector as being a national or domestic sector. It's highly international. And you can see that international character by examining closely these regional formations, whether they're on Teesside or Grangemouth, on the Thames Estuary or in West Wales. Uh, It seems like a confusing time, Gavin. Um, We must stop drilling for and burning hydrocarbons. But recently, Rosebank the North Sea's largest undeveloped oil and gas field was given a green light for drilling. Is that correct? And it's since been delayed? So Rosebank is a large um, oil and and gas field to to the west of Shetland. It's one of a number of of significant fields in that area. The area in which Rosebank sits has been licensed. It received an exploration and production license some time ago. So the issue around it now is whether the proposals for development will be consented, will be given authorization by the North Sea Transition Authority, which regulates oil and gas production. Rosebank is, if you like, becoming um, one of the sites through which the future of oil in the UK is being negotiated, uh, contested, being worked through. It's featured in the party politics uh, in the sense that Labour has announced that if it came into government, it would stop issuing new licences for oil and gas. And the issue there is that large fields like Rosebank wouldn't be affected by that decision not to issue new licences because they are already licensed. And when pushed on this, Labour have clarified that they don't intend to stop fields like Rosebank from going ahead. The issue with a a large reserve like that is, I guess, a couple of things. There's around 500 million barrels of oil in in Rosebank. Equinor, the operator, has indicated that it proposes to extract around 300 million barrels. Incidentally, a barrel is a rather strange unit. It's an archaic unit. Oil isn't sold in barrels literally anymore. But a barrel is 42 US gallons. That's around 38 British gallons, which probably doesn't mean much in uh, contemporary parlance, but it's 159 litres. And if you want to know what 159 litres is, a litre, 159 litres, a barrel of oil is about a bathtub full of oil. So around 300 million bathtub equivalents of oil uh, would be extracted from Rosebank. Most of that, because oil is sold into international markets, would not come into the UK. At the moment, six out of every seven barrels extracted offshore is sold directly into international markets. Doesn't touch the UK, goes straight into, into international markets. So oil from Rosebank would not come into the UK, would not materially address concerns about UK energy security. But of course, what would be affected would be 
locking in infrastructure that would produce oil for 20 to 30 years, and that when combusted, that oil would add to uh, global emissions of, of greenhouse gases. And going back to the title of, of your research, um, what is the scope of the UK oil sector? Um, what were your findings on industry change over time? I guess we've got two findings that, that are really significant, we think. One is that the composition of the, the sector um, has changed sig- significantly over time. So in the offshore, the companies that are involved in the production and extraction of oil are no longer those that, to which we've become familiar, uh, which we associate with the offshore companies like BP, Shell, Conoco and Exxon. But there are a range of companies who are less familiar, who tend to be smaller um, or and or who are integrated into a range of different uh, international uh, political and economic networks. Some of those are state firms headquartered in, in Asia and the Middle East. Some of those are forms of private equity that draw on uh, pension funds uh, raised primarily in the United States, but elsewhere. So the sort of companies operating in the UK uh, has changed materially. And we see that not just in the offshore, but also in the refinery sector too. And lastly, um, what type of energy future are we headed towards in the UK? Bearing all this in mind, that there's a change in ownership and a transition towards low carbon energy in the future. Yeah, I mean, the question of energy futures is is a very live one at the moment. Um, the Climate Change Committee, the independent body that advises the UK government, produces a series of progress reports. And their most recent one stresses the urgency of action and contrasts that with a kind of lack of urgency in current policy, that it's insufficient to meet the government's own legally binding targets for decarbonisation. So the, the question of, of of energy futures and where we're headed is a very live one and a sense that we're off track to meet the stated destination of decarbonising the energy sector. There are a number of aspects to that that are worth focusing on. I think one is that a lot of attention has been focused on supply, on the supply side of electricity generation, or in this case, offshore oil and gas. But actually increasing energies and efforts and sustained attention needs to be paid to demand, to questions of energy efficiency to things like insulation, for example, and demand reduction. That's been an area that has not been front and centre in the policy space for a while. There's a a couple of other things we might say. One is that at the moment, the model of energy futures is some ways very similar to the past. So obviously not in terms of technology. So it's very very easy to see there have been significant developments like the build-up of offshore wind. And you look at the scale of the wind investment pipeline um, but these on their own are, are not enough. The similarity, as I think, I think is that the model here is one of attracting international capital into the UK, large firms in particular. And the reason it looks like that is the problem has been framed primarily as one of an investment problem. So we've designed policy regimes that their primary focus is to attract investment and which is actually quite agnostic about where that investment comes from. And what's also going on is we're seeing that model being challenged in various quarters. So calls for energy democracy or for energy justice, those calls, those uh, claims, what they do is they carry with them a range of alternative models. So, for example, city scale, municipal scale solutions, particularly for energy efficiency, around municipal networks for electricity or for housing insulation or for uh, gas distribution, 
or we're seeing the the continued devolution to the regions also offer some other interesting possibilities. So I think the energy future is not only about rolling out renewables and about winding down fossil fuels. It's also about who owns the energy system and about the social and economic and political formations to which that energy system gives rise. Thank you very much for joining us today, Gavin. Um, And as you said at the start, a lot of this is to do with the three Ps of property, profit and future possibilities. Thanks, Harry. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to the Ask the Geographer podcast series on iTunes and SoundCloud.com. Be inspired and stay informed with the Society's wide range of resources, many of which are free. School membership unlocks access to other excellent resources, including online lectures and many other tailor-made benefits for teachers and students. Access our resources at www.rgs.org schools.